Hey everyone, welcome to the latest installment of the Climbing Advocate Podcast, episode number 52, a conversation with Quinn Brett and Sam Sala. This is your host, Peter Horgan. Many of you are probably already familiar with Quinn's name and the influence she has been having on improving access for adaptive users in the outdoors, particularly in our national parks. Given Quinn's previous experience as a climbing ranger in Rocky Mountain National Park and the extensive amount of time she spent in wilderness areas and other backcountry type settings, has positioned her well to help lead the charge for federal agencies in providing more user-friendly infrastructure for accessible use. Let's take a second and define accessible real quick. We can basically sum it up by saying that it's, it's a design process in which the needs of people with disabilities are specifically considered. This of course can be something physical or mental. Some examples of this include wider tread on trails to accommodate something like hand cycles, improved interpretive signage for folks with a vision or audio disability, or moving beyond just the one mile paved trail that's close to the visitor center. And I mentioned that specifically because Quinn brings that example up. Quinn has an insatiable thirst for getting out there. I mean, getting way out there. So it's no surprise that she's putting her best foot forward in this line of work. Sam Sala is an instructor with the adaptive nonprofit Paradox Sports and is one of Quinn's good friends. Sam says he accidentally stumbled into climbing about a decade ago and, of course, like the rest of us, was hooked immediately. Found himself at a gym in Boulder, Colorado, where he saw an adaptive climber in a wheelchair campus his way up one of the steeper walls in the gym, and he couldn't believe what he had just witnessed. That inspired Sam to get involved with the adaptive climbing community, and that eventually led him to working with Paradox Sports. Since then, he has worked with hundreds of adaptive climbers and can attest that putting meaningful focus on improving access for adaptive individuals and athletes like Quinn is doing will only enrich their experience. So we discuss this a bit further and some of the barriers, challenges, and opportunities that face the adaptive community and some of the lessons that Sam has walked away with after working with so many of these adaptive athletes. This is a topic that we've only talked about once before on the show, so I'm really excited to give it some more airtime here. All right, so with that, please enjoy my conversation with Quinn Brett and Sam Sala. Before we get into the episode, I want to give thanks and show some love for the supporters and sponsors of the show. Black Diamond, Adidas Turex, Gnarly Nutrition, Mammut, Alpine Start Coffee, and Plutone Audio. Thank you all for the continued support of the Climbing Advocate podcast and dedication to our climbing community. All right, sweet. Well, uh, thank you both for joining me today. Um, Quinn, we got introduced through a mutual friend, uh, Eric Murdoch with the Access Fund, and you enthusiastically said that Sam should join us here as well. So I'm super psyched to have the, have the both of you here. And Sam, you've been traveling from Alaska, and now you're in, now you're in Salt Lake for the Paraclimbing World, uh, World Cup event. So thanks a bunch to both of you to squeeze a bit of time into your schedule this evening to chat for a bit. I mean, Sam, you were willing to do it on a weather day in Alaska, so I, I could tell you're, you're pretty psyched to jump on <laughs> Yeah, <that>. anytime <laughs> I get to hang out with Quinn, it's a good, it's a good time. Yeah, right on. <laughs> I'm glad we were able to sort out some schedules and make this thing come together. Um, so, Quinn, I know I know you live in Estes Park, Colorado. Are you originally from there, or where you, where you originally based from? 
No, I am originally from Minneapolis, Minnesota, or a small suburb from Minneapolis. But I've been in Estes Park for 15 years. Which uh, suburb in Minneapolis? New Hope. No hope for New Hope, as we like to say. <laughs> I'm from the Chicago area and spent some time around Minneapolis. I know like Adina, Adina, Adina. Mm, Adina, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm familiar with that area a little bit. But uh, How about you, Sam? Uh, I know you're in Salt Lake now. Do you, are, you, are you living there? Are you in Colorado as yeah, well? Yeah, I am also Colorado. Uh, I'm based out of the Front Range. Uh, moved there in 2006. Um, and uh, yeah, just kind of fell in love with the place and don't have any plans on leaving anytime soon. Nice. Good. Me neither. <laughs> I'm down like in Gunnison, Crested Butte, so not too far away, but South Central. I think um, I think you guys might know a friend of mine, uh, Betty Philbin from the Adaptive Sports Center in Crested Butte, yeah. maybe. You guys maybe have crossed some paths, or at least Quinn, maybe you have crossed paths with her at one point. Yeah, I've recreated a bit in Crested Butte. They do the, every August, they do the um, world championships for adaptive hand cycles. Oh, which is nice. fun on the mountain. Right on. Mm-hmm. Sweet. And you, and you showed your film here recently too, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. I went to ski there maybe a month ago and then they showed um, my uh, tour divide, hand cycling, the tour divide film. Mm. Yep. Nice. Yeah. I don't know where I was because I definitely would have been there. I probably was out of town. <laughs> <laughs> and I watched that. I watched the video recently that you sent me and it was yeah, very cool. Very cool. Really enjoyed it. Another question I like to ask both, you know, the guests um, before you get into the meat of the episode is just a little bit of your climbing history. What you, what you got, when you got into it, how you got into it and kind of what, what intrigued you about the sport to begin with. So I've heard a little bit of your story, Quinn, but uh, what, when did uh, the climbing, when did the climbing life start for you? Uh, it started pretty young for me. My family, we traveled to national parks when I was a youth. Um, and I just went from like, hiking and scrambling into climbing. Um, by the time I was like 13, I had been exposed to it randomly at like a career day in my middle school in sixth grade, which is so very random in the middle of Minnesota. Um, but I got to climb, you know, on the plastic holds in our gym, which our, the, our climbing gym and our, our like gymnasium in Minnesota had a climbing wall, uh, and so I just really fell in love with it. And a best friend at the time, her dad had had some gear. And so we just started climbing some more and more and more. And by the time I got to high school, Meredy and I were climbing a lot. And my parents were uh, taking us to the gym and buying me a rope and buying me quick draws. And I still hadn't really climbed outside. And then in college, I convinced people who had a car to drive to Taylor's Falls. And I would set up the top ropes because I read how to do it in John Long's book. And they had the car and I had the equipment. And so, yeah, just kind of developed from there. Yeah, match made in heaven. Have you have you <laughs> ever been to Tadaguchi State Park? A little bit further north, I think, north of Duluth, maybe? No. Yeah, it's this beautiful, like, cliff, uh, like, you know, seaside cliff along Lake Superior. Um, beautiful, really cool. I went to the Boundary Waters a couple of years ago and stopped there on the way home. And it's like, there's got to be climbing here. And there's a lot. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. How about you, Sam? What uh, when did you get into it? So I <laughs> I got into it pretty accidentally, actually. Um, I was going through a divorce in 2013, uh, and just being at home wasn't a very fun place to be. And I was like, what can I do after work that's not like you know just going to a bar every day? Um, so I was kind of brainstorming some ideas about like what's fun and healthy and 
entertaining. And I literally got stuck at a red light in front of uh, a climbing gym here, uh, rocking and jamming. And I was just like, yeah, never tried climbing. Just turned, turned into the parking lot, rented some shoes and bouldered for two hours and uh, never looked back. Um, and then just through, through dumb luck, I kind of happened into a series of the, you know, the, the world's best mentors, as I call them. Um, and I just happened to learn some incredible skills from incredible people. Um, and then kind of started taking, taking friends and, and folks out climbing, uh, and got enough feedback from them. They were like, Hey, you're really good at teaching. You're really good at kind of doing this. You should be a guide. Um, and at that point I was in, in corporate world and, and ended up kind of finally taking some stock in what people were saying and chose to take a vow of voluntary poverty and <laughs> go the guiding lifestyle. And uh, that was in 2018. I've been guiding since. <laughs> nice. Right on. Um, going on the AMGA track then I assume. Yeah. Just, uh, just staying low on it. I'm not, I'm not uh, aspiring to go full pin or anything like that with it. Um, kind of, keeping, keeping requirements to keep working for paradox. And, and just, I like, I like progressing my skills, but yeah, I'm definitely not looking at, uh, chasing the, chasing the full pin dream. It's a lot of money and a lot of time (laughs) that I just don't want to put into it. Yeah. I was just out of the crag last weekend with my buddy who just got his pin last year and, Asked him some more about it, and yeah, he said it took him about eight years. I mm-hmm. think it's, you know it's like a it's like a PhD, you know it's a PhD, pretty essentially, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> or like a, you know a doctorate or something. Right. Well, I didn't start climbing until I was you know thirty five, so <laughs> it's like by the time I got my guide, my full pin, I would be ready for retirement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I said, I'm, I'm super excited to have you both on to talk today about adaptive sports and accessibility in the outdoors. I had uh, Karima Bats on a few years ago. I'm sure you're probably both familiar with, I've heard of her. And that's really the only other time that I've talked about accessibility and adaptive sports on the show. So really happy to give it some more airtime here. And um, so with that, I want to kind of kick things off here with some kind of with some one-on-one and around the correct vocabulary to use when talking about adaptive sports and accessible use. It's something that's really important to me. And I consulted with my friend who I mentioned, Betty, that works at the Adaptive Sports Center in Crested Butte to learn a, little, learn a little bit more. And I want the folks listening to understand this as well. So can either of you brief us a little bit on what terminology might be considered antiquated and what is most commonly used now when talking about accessibility? And either one of you can take this. I'm not handicapped. I'm a gimp. <laughs> uh, honestly, um, we uh, handicapped uh, is an antiquated term. I would say yes, using the word accessible, like accessible parking, accessible restroom, uh, adaptive athlete. Those are the terms that are of now. Sam, would you agree? I would 100% agree. Yeah, yeah. The G word is not. Uh, it's not one that I. It's not one that I toss around. <laughs> um, it's uh yeah it's it's there's there's a lot of ways to to address people um you know a lot of people push the 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 person first uh some folks are kind of identity first mm-hmm. 
So it all depends on who you're talking to as, as far as I'm concerned. Like some people for, prefer I'm a, uh, you know, a climber with a disability. Some people say I'm a disabled climber. Um, and it's, it's, it's very personal, whoever you're talking to, but as long as you're doing it respectfully, like you, you can tend to default to one side or the other. And if somebody prefers, <laughs> prefers the other, they can correct you. Yeah. And I would say, be curious about it. Like just, you know, if it's not, if it's not pertinent to the conversation, you don't need to even mention the disability um, that they even have one. But if it's like you're in referencing like, Hey, they're a climber. Oh, and they also, they happen to have a disability, like, because it might make them, you know, it's pertinent to the conversation, but otherwise, and if it's the person, uh, the best way is just to ask, Hey, how would, you know, Hey, I know your name's Quinn, but how do you prefer to be referenced to yeah. Yeah. So disability is okay. Yeah. I just, you know, I, I grappled, that's one I just kind of felt like a little bit of a gray area around. Yeah. Of course people get so nervous about it. Like they kind of stammer over their words. I have a, a friend, uh, I've got a, a picture. I'll have to send it to you both. Um, my buddy Tanner, he and I got a, a picture we were wearing like nineties track suits together and his shirt underneath just says disability is not a bad word. And it's like that, sums it up. <laughs> okay. Copy that. I just, yeah, I, I didn't know like the juxtaposition between like saying disability versus someone who's abled. Cause like, it's not like you're unable. Right. And just, and I just wanted to make sure that, you know, those kinds of things I was aware of and other folks are aware of too. So, um, well, I mean, you've become a Quinn, you've become a very prominent voice and advocate for better accessibility in the outdoors. You've been on multiple podcasts, on speaking engagements. You've had a film made about you, which I'm really looking forward to watching eventually when it comes out uh, for the whole public to watch. Um, and you've had, you've helped, you've been able to help federal land managers address these matters, right? But just from your point of view as an avid recreationist, I'd like to know what you were seeing or perhaps not seeing at first that was limiting folks with disabilities from accessing recreation-based amenities, particularly in the backcountry. So it's kind of a two-parter, but can you start with like what you maybe first, what jumped out at you first when you kind of got into this work a bit? Well, as a, I think my lens of being a person with a disability, um, just just that shift for me, the shift in perspective from being a person who was doing handstands on the top of tiny little mountain summits and running wherever the shit I wanted, whenever I wanted to obviously now not running anywhere. Um, but noticing that, um, the story for people with disabilities as that one, we're not very capable to, you don't see us out because things aren't accessible. And then that spirals into, well, you don't see us, so there's nothing to fix. So there's nothing to fix because you don't see us. Just this odd conundrum. Um, and and knowing that my personality wants to be outside playing all day, every day, I don't want to be on the paved trail. And I'm, yes, I'm very, I'm disabled. Half my body doesn't work anymore, but I'm still quite capable. And with all this new technology that's out there, um, I am very capable of going places that kind of are, I'm noticing with land managers, they're quite receptive. I would say the high percentages, they're receptive, but they're just, their mind is blown because they didn't know the technology existed. They didn't 
know how capable we are. They didn't. And then that gives more voice to us of telling them how, how we want to be out there. I noticed the stuff in the front country a lot, like picnic tables that have like a longer end on them. You know, they can slide a wheelchair mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. You know, a mobile device under, um, you know, I see that more in the in the front country, but what was maybe missing in the back country was just like the width of trails, uh, steps, you know, ramps. How does, how did that all work? Yeah. So exactly what you're talking about there. So we have, we do have laws and standards on the federal land sides for what we call outdoor developed areas. So from the parking lot to the bathroom, bathroom to the picnic table, picnic table, um, for physical access. We also have, um, accessibility laws for like website compliance. So that way a person who is blind, they can read the screen of where they want to go in our public lands. Um, we have those things set up, but it doesn't mean we're necessarily using them appropriately or that we've caught up to the times. Um, but then what I noticed was, right, we don't have any standards. We have, we have standards for trails. We are to the best extent practicable to build trails to be accessible. And we are given, there's a caveat there, even in the law, we're given four exceptions. Exceptions being that the terrain doesn't allow for the trail to be accessible, meet those accessibility standards, uh, historical, cultural, environmental reasons, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But I think what I noticed was like, people see the word accessible, they assume it means what's got to be the accessible trail, it's got to be paved one mile, whatever it is. Um, And we're given those exceptions, but I guess I'm what I'm challenging with in my work as public land managers to recognize that maybe we're throwing in the towel too soon for those exceptions, given our desire and given our capabilities. Yes, in just my manual wheelchair, what I'm capable of, but with newer technology that has more capabilities, what that exceed, what that, um, I guess, extends to. Mm -hmm. What is that newer technology you're referring to? Um, So like... We have all these hand cycles that are way more capable that didn't exist 10, you know, they were in existence 10 years ago, Um, but they're becoming, uh, I guess that's another term of accessibility. Like they're not the most accessible because they're quite expensive, uh, but they're becoming more prevalent. Um, And, and there's a lot of adaptive recreation sports centers um, locally, like city of Boulder or Reno adaptive that have, that are getting a collection of these tools um, and these mobility devices for people to use because they're not accessible necessarily financially, but nor are they easy to move around. They're 50 to hundred pounds. Um, and traveling is a huge conundrum that we could go on our own little diatribe about mobility devices and airline travel. Um, but there, yeah, so there's this newer technology that is allowing for the spectrum of experience on our public lands to, to widen. Yeah, for sure. Given your previous experience as a big wall climber and a, you were a climbing ranger in Rocky Mountain National Park, right? I was, yep. Yeah. So you spent a lot of time in actual designated capital W wilderness areas and other wilderness type areas. Is that what inspired you to be drawn towards focusing on accessibility in a more of a backcountry type setting? I think so. I think, yeah, just noticing, as I said before, like I was able, my access before was unlimited. Um, and now it's a minuscule amount of what, what 
is known, I guess. And so along with those laws that we're talking about, so it's trail sign information is, is in that caveat of like, Hey, we have to make the bathroom, the bathroom's accessible, the parking lot's accessible, the pick and carry is accessible. Um, along with that is that trail sign information needs to include five things. And I'm no, I noticed, I found this little niche in that, well, if, yeah, if I had that information, then I would know what mobility device to use, how many friends to bring along, what trails actually work for me rather than getting siloed into that one mile paved trail because the public lands worker unfortunately just saw the wheelchair and was like yeah the wheelchair trail because the picture of the wheelchair is over there on that trail that's a mile long and it's paved and unfortunately that's where everybody else is i don't want to be there i don't want to hang out with everybody all the time i want to be out in the wilderness by myself When Quinn said we should get you to join Sam, she said that you've worked with hundreds of adaptive climbers and you're just an all around awesome person. So it's like, so we need need to get him on, right? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So I'd like to hear more about like when your career began working with adaptive athletes and what eventually led you into working with uh, Paradox Sports. Yeah. So I, you know, like I said, I started climbing 2013, uh, 2014-ish and I was in a gym. uh, I was at the Boulder Rock Club. And the, at the time, I think it was called the, the climbing club, the local, the local indoor meetups, as we call them nowadays, uh, the group of folks from paradox came in. And at that point in time, like climbing five ten for me was like the most impossible thing in the world. And the, the big lead overhung lead cave was like the most intimidating thing in the gym. Uh, and I watched a guy in a wheelchair come in, tie in and just start campusing up the wall without using his feet. And I was just like, I don't know what I'm seeing, but this is mind blowing. I have to learn more. Uh, so I went, I sat down and talked to the gal who was running the program at the time. Um, and she was like, you know, we we're always looking for volunteers, come volunteer. I was like, let me get better at climbing. So I'm an asset. And then, uh, you know, about, I don't know, nine months, 10 months later, um, I think it was about 2015, I think was my first, uh, my first paradox event that I volunteered at, uh, was down at shelf road. It was one of the national trips. Um, and I've just been hooked ever since. And my goal is to eventually become obsolete. <laughs> um, it's, it's weird to say in a, my full-time job is to try to get the community to a place where it just runs itself. And I'm, I'm wanted around, but not needed. Um, and it's, it's getting close. Like there's, a lot of really, really cool things happening in the adaptive climbing space, at least, um, that, that give me hope, um, that, <laughs> that I won't be needed for a whole lot longer. <laughs> Not worried about job security. No, I mean, it's, it, it's a fun job. Um, but my, yeah, the ideally I, I won't do it forever. <laughs> What have you learned over over these years? Uh, you've worked with so many adaptive climbers. Like, what what insights or lessons have you have you walked away from? You know, what's uh, what has gone beyond seeing the the gentleman in the wheelchair at his campus around the bouldering cave? Um, the probably the biggest thing that I that I just harp on every time I teach a course. Um, so I teach. We, we also have a program called the ACI, the Adaptive Climbing Initiative, where we travel around the country and we teach gyms and different facilities and different facilitators how to, how to offer adaptive climbing services. Um, so one of the biggest things that I harp on when I'm teaching those courses is we have a line that says partners, not passengers. 
Um, and you know, the, the best resource that we have to work with is the person themselves is the climber themselves. Um, and if you come at it from the, the facilitator's side of things where you're like, I know what you need. I know what you can't do. I can't, I know know what you can, I know what you can't do. Um, I know exactly how to make it work for you. That doesn't, that doesn't make somebody a part of the team. It doesn't make, it doesn't make them, you know, feel like they're part of something. Um, And I've found that if you, if you come in and you ask them what they want to accomplish uh, and you offer them solutions and you ask them questions and you get a lot of buy-in and a lot of feedback from folks, um, you end up with a lot more fulfilling experience, I think, than, than just coming in and being like the, the, the pilot on a, or the captain of a ship. You're like, let them captain their own ship. It's their ship. (laughs) I'm just there to, to help them steer if they need some help steering. That's about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just be more inquisitive than directive maybe. Yeah. And you know, it's like a, it's as simple as if you see somebody who is a wheelchair user, don't assume that they need to climb the easiest thing there. Like assume come at it from a position of strength, like assume that they're going to be able to campus the, the lead wall, like come at it from, from a position of strength, not as a position of weakness. Um, and that's, I don't know. It's a, a really easy way to, to be successful in, in adaptive climbing and adaptive sports in general, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just assumptions. I mean, I always believe I'm a strong believer that assumptions just only get you in trouble. So don't assume. And I think I was, I was going to say, I think I, I see this narrative in the social space with uh, other diversity, equity, and inclusion matters and social matters. And you're trying to, we're all trying to do better to be inclusive and stuff. And you often just assume that this is what people want because they haven't been included in the past and then you end up getting it wrong. And I don't know if that, you know, I hope that makes sense. And, but I, I've just seen it before. So it, it, it applies across the board. So I'm glad you brought that up, Sam. Um, what successes have you seen over the years? I mean, how, how have things improved and whether it comes to technology or just being, being included um, in, in conversations and just yeah, more about your experience about how things have progressed over the years? Um, I think the, one of the biggest successes that I can note, um, isn't really on the technology side. It's, it's the community side. Um, adaptive climbing has just in the time that I've been involved with it has exploded. Um, like the paraclimbing scene is getting huge. Um, we do a, we have an event, uh, every fall at the Red River Gorge in Kentucky. Uh, It's called ACF, Adaptive Climbers Fest. Um, And last year, we kind of brought it back online post-COVID. And we had, I think, just somewhere around 200 people total come to Kentucky and climb for a couple of days. Um, We had 98 disabled athletes climbing down there. uh, And then, you know, a bunch of volunteers, a bunch of staff. and it just was, it was such a cool event because it was just like any other climbing festival. Um, but all of the clinics, we had some top-notch clinics. We had a, you know, intro to trad clinic, a learn to lead clinic. There was um, like 
lower lower limb difference clinics. There was upper limb difference clinics. There was blind VI clinics. Uh, we had a mindfulness clinic. We had an arts and crafts clinic. <laughs> like there was all of these cool, all of these really cool ways to to get engaged, uh, and it was all community led. Um, like I'm I'm the safety director for it. My job is to make sure the ropes are hung, the lockers are locked, and the knots are tied, and then I just disappear into the bushes. And the community runs itself, um, and I think that's a huge, a huge success. Is we've got enough, enough folks with the experience and the and the psych um, that that you you give you you like you you like the you like the tinder and it just like <laughs> it's it's just gone up um, and it's it's amazing to watch and it's something I'm I'm super proud of. Um, and I'm really happy to be involved in it. And, um, if anybody has a chance to get to the red, uh, it's kind of mid-October. Um, it is an absolutely amazing event. It's a hell of a lot of fun. How about you, Quinn? Do you, is there any, are there any successful projects you've worked on, like literally, like literally, like infrastructure you've worked on uh, in parks or other public lands that you've seen come to, uh, that you've seen come to fruition to open up more opportunities for accessibility? Yeah. So. Um... I was working with the National Park Service for a while and it's definitely, it's been cool to get, there are a few national parks who've gotten on board with, for instance, measuring their trails. I mean, that's a, a, a small bite of the elephant of our, of in the National Park Service of 20,000 miles worth of trails to measure. Um, but there are parks getting after it that want to provide this information. So then the user's, um, can make a more informed decision about their experience. And I think, I think a selling point for my, from my lens or to the parks is that, yes, I am now a person with a disability, but this, I can speak to how like preventative search and rescue wise, it, this just isn't for people with disabilities. This information is important for all users of our public lands and to ma- and making better informed decisions and yeah, we're still we're still going to have accidents and incidents, but hopefully people bring more sunscreen and more water and wear the appropriate clothing or turn around because they're like, whoa, that elevation gain is not what I anticipated. Our nation is on this lovely kick of diversity, equity, inclusive, but we often forget about accessibility. Um, uh, and there's laws binding and not that there's not e- all of them are equally as important, but I think sometimes we forget about the inherent if again, like if you don't see the folks out, then that's not a population that you're thinking of making things better for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And often with, especially people with um, more severe disabilities, there are a lot of things that are not just physical, but there are a lot of things that just aren't accessible or it is a shit ton more work for us to be out in public and to navigate, um, and to just exist. And so when things aren't accessible, you don't see us. And then, then yeah, it just is perpetual. When we use the word access, especially now, like there was just an article for um, a, a Southern Colorado uh, land management organization that was like, we're going to give more access, accessible mountain biking. And I actually emailed the land managers. I was like, you mean accessible, meaning like you talk to the private landowner, so now there's access to the land or accessible to access like adaptive hand cyclists. And there wasn't a response. 
but the way we use that word is important also. Yeah, totally. Totally. Sam, did you want to add anything? No, I, I, I'm kind of of the same, the same lens. Um, I, I think the, the DEI matrix across the board is a really important thing. I think there's a whole lot, uh, there's a whole lot of the population that needs better representation. Um, and like Quinn was saying, because things aren't accessible, you don't see people out using them. So you don't think to include them, which makes them not want to come out. And it's like she said, it's just this vicious cycle <laughs> that, that kind of perpetuates itself. Um, the number of times I've talked to climbing gyms about starting an adaptive program and having them go, well, we don't really have a need for it. Like we don't have any accessible climbers. It's like, well, yeah, it's because you've never put any effort into accessible climbing. Um, and so people just, people aren't coming to your spot. Um, and that's, that's an argument that or a, not an argument, but a point that you have to make quite often. <laughs> Disability, I would say of, I always like to use this phrase of disabilities and open enrollment. Uh, we're all trending there eventually. So we joke about it as far as like inclusivity goes, the disabled community is the most inclusive because anybody can join at any time. Um, and that's a, it's a, it's, it's dark, but it's also very, very true. Like Quinn said, we're all headed that way eventually. Um, so yeah, let's get, let's get out in front of it now. <laughs> What's your dream Quinn about having a universal trail in all national parks? I've seen that term thrown around a little bit. Well, step one is just providing the information. Um, and uh, there has been pushback from a few on the D capital W wilderness side of like, I mean, so I was a climbing ranger before my injury. So I, and I have a lot of wilderness training and my job in the national park service, in fact, was my, my main, um, I was in three divisions, but the, my main supervisor is the chief of wilderness. Um, and so I'm, I also have a wilderness lens of knowing that like, we want that spectrum of experience. Um, and so one is providing the trail information, but two, just knowing and teaching that, 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 that that's available to us, I guess. And so I want to have, I love the like crazy techie rock crawl. And I do love every once in a while I have to I have to rally the troops if I want to get to the boulder field on Long's Peak, which I have done in my hand cycle. Um, but I also want to go out by myself and feel comfortable and safe by myself. And so just for, for me, the dream is just to have that information and then I can, I can decide, Hey, do I need Sam and seven others today? Or can I just go out by myself and not be worried and to provide that, um, my dream, I guess, when you, I think you've read that in an article was it's like, right. If every national park had like that variety of experiences. So we, yes, we have the accessible trail, which is also important. I'm not diminishing the, the importance of those, those specific experiences because they provide that known experience. Um, but to be able to broaden that opportunity, I suppose, is my dream. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I was curious how, how this might mesh with the characteristics like of what wilderness is defined as non-motorized, non-mechanized, you know, those, those kinds of things. Did you run into any of those specific barriers trying to do this? For sure. There's definitely, um, uh, because wilderness managers don't necessarily have 
uh, an education or knowledge of accessibility laws. And so there's both. And there, it's a balance of both. One doesn't supersede the other. We need to be mindful of the characters and the quality of wilderness, the untrammeled, the natural qualities, the the solitude opportunities and recreational opportunities. But we also need to be knowing that, well, as a person who isn't going to army crawl up the trail, my only mode of transportation does have wheels. And although those are prohibited in wilderness, they aren't for a person with a, uh, a mobility disability. Okay. Thanks for clarifying. I was wondering if there was some kind of exemption, you know, associated with that. If, if you, if you have to have, wheels. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. There is a, the ADA, which the pub, public lands doesn't go, I could dive into all the law stuff, but the public lands, federal lands don't go, don't abide by the ADA, the American with Disabilities Act, but the ADA does provide a definition about wilderness and people with mobility devices and wheelchairs specifically and their allowance. Gotcha. Okay. Good to know. Sam, have you spent time with uh, adaptive folks out in, out in designated wilderness and how to navigate through this? Uh, I haven't spent a ton of time out in, you know, capital W wilderness. Um, most of our programming is front country, kind of single pitch um, and indoors. Um, but we do we do run some stuff in like national parks. We run a Yosemite trip that's actually coming up here next weekend um, <laughs> uh, or two weekends. We do stuff on um, like BLM land um, where we're out camping for a few days. Um, and so definitely we've, we've been out, I would call it almost side country. Um, but unfortunately kind of our, our limitations with our programming, we don't get to go into like the, the deep back country. Um, but I've done some, some personal guiding with folks in Eldo taking some, you know, some of the, bushwhackier approaches to things. Um, and I've, I've found that with, with a little bit of effort and a little bit of time, um, there's not much that can't be done. Um, it's just a matter of getting land managers to not be scared of it, um, to get just general society to not be scared of it and to, to be willing to give it a shot versus like, like Quinn said, paving a one mile loop trail that doesn't, go anywhere else <laughs> and making that the way. I know like with the, with the passing of the Great American Outdoors Act and, and all the funding that's going to go towards the backlog of, of maintenance needs in national parks and stuff, I'm sure as, you know, as everyone here, you might be fighting for funding to, to get this stuff done. Is there, are there funds that will come out of like the land and water conservation funds and monies that can come from that to help build this infrastructure? Or are you butting heads for that money trying to compete with the backlog of, of maintenance? How does that, how does that look, look for you, Quinn? I know. Do I get so excited? I like to, I'm like such a education nerd and uh, uh, nerd. Okay. I'm just a nerd. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> Goa, I'm so excited that you had this question prefaces because I was like, cool, I can teach people some shit. Okay, so GOA, if you don't know what it is, the Great American Outdoors Act, it funds $2 billion annually for the next five years. But there are four initiatives within that. So we want to improve the, the Department of Interior's financial health by doing that deferred maintenance kind of stuff. 
Uh, we wanted maximize citizens served. So that's like American with Disabilities Act kind of stuff, expanding recreational access. We want to protect those that we served. So like Bureau of uh, Indian Education, uh, that's included in there. And then four, we want to plan for the future. So we have these four things, $2 billion every year for the next five years. Plus, that's just like a bulk for right now. Um, but to give some perspective, we have about 2 billion acres of public lands. So if you want to be super simple, that's a dollar an acre a year. And we're not granted, of course, we're not doing any improvements to a lot of our acreage, but we do have more than one bathroom at these sites. So we have like Golly, we have like 400 national parks, 600 wildlife refugees, 900 BLM sites, and 204 service sites. We have a shit ton of sites with a lot of bathrooms, a lot of parking lots, a lot of visitor centers, a lot of interpretive programs. That money doesn't go very far, unfortunately. Uh, and that's just the fr front country stuff. Yeah. And then you want to expand recreational opportunities. Ooh. Doesn't mean it's not moving and it doesn't mean that there isn't hope or that there isn't progress and that there isn't intention, but it's we need, yeah, there needs to be more focus and dollars in that way. And we have a lot of volunteers. Can we rally them up? And, you know, like, can we, can we, if this is really an important initiative, how can we rally the people, like people who have time and volunteers? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was monumental getting that law passed and, and uh, reauthorizing the land, the LWCF and those funds. Um, yeah, it's really encouraging to hear that that's, uh, that was one of the four included in there. It's great. Well, Quinn, you had a you had a really cool and funny Instagram post recently uh, talking about doing cool shit and how you still do cool shit. You did some cool shit in the past, still doing cool shit. So I want to hear more about that cool shit. Like, what other how have you pivoted and and what other activities and sports have you gotten yourself into? That's funny. I know I write stuff and then I forget. Uh... <laughs> I mean, I do. I mean, I guess I, I guess that purpose of that post is to remember that, like, yes, I'm a disabled human and it sucks every single day, but my life is still fantastic every single day. I do have access to hand cycles and I do have the ability to drive to them. And like as, as dire as my life perspective has switched, I'm still very fortunate. Um, and I forgot where I was going with the rest of it. Just what other activities? I know you, yeah. Oh, what am I doing? Hand cycling, so yeah. Yeah. So when I first moved to Colorado, in fact, from Minnesota, yeah, I'd climbed a bit, but I was actually like wicked into mountain biking. Like I would go to Hall Ranch. I lived in Estes Park still, worked at the YMCA of the Rockies, but I biked a lot at Hall Ranch down in Lyons or Devil's Backbone um, and then just met more climbers, I guess. And so my I started climbing a little bit more and biking fell away. Um, and so now that's just one of the, I mean, People are like, Quinn, you bike all the time. I'm like, well, right. But this is like my walking device, my hiking device, and it's my bicycle. So it meets a lot of needs uh, for me. So I might be on the same piece of equipment, but I'm walking around the paved path around Lake Estes, or I'm actually going, doing the Tour Divide or whatever it is. Um, so I would say that Nordic skiing, like Sam and I, or backcountry skiing, because there's, if there's any people out there who are good at inventing shit, uh, I would really love to have like the Nordic ski become a mono ski. So like split board setup, that would be sick. Cause there's not really a good backcountry ski setup for paralyzed folks yet. Yeah. Uh, but like Sam and I have done some backcountry skiing and Nordic skiing. That's a thing. And then kayaking and water rafting also 
things. Disc golf's pretty good. I can't throw it as nice. far. <laughs> that was my jam in high school and like early college. Dude, I um, loved it. I lived in Arizona and I got it for a while down there and I like played a lot of disc golf down there, but then I like started hurting my forearms and I was like, oh shit, was it disc golf or climbing? Which one? <laughs> Do you see that with uh, other athletes? Um, Sam, I was talking to my wife and she used to work at the Adaptive Sports Center in Crested Butte as well. And um, she mentioned that some folks are just, they're so grateful uh, in a way because they did not go skiing prior to their injury. And now they get, they get to experience skiing through this medium uh, with other adaptive athletes and stuff. Do you, have you experienced that Sam with some of the folks that you've worked with? Uh, yeah, I have. Um, <clears throat> I, you know, I, I, obviously I focus my main, everything is climbing. Um, but we've had some, some cool experiences with people who, you know, hadn't rock climbed very much. They, they kind of got into it and then, um, whatever, whatever it was, whether it was ice climbing or crack climbing or whatever specific style of climbing, just like bit them and they took off like a rocket. Um, we've got, we've got some folks in the community right now. Um, one of my friends, he's a, he's a sculptor. He's an artist. Um, he's, he's, uh, blind. He's been blind for a number of years. Um, and he makes art by touch and he makes these huge intricate sculptures. Um, he's got a seven foot giraffe in his yard. He's working on this like 18 foot bug lizard thing. He, he can't really even describe it. I don't know what it is, but it's humongous and it's really cool to see. Um, but he also snowboards, he crack climbs, he ice climbs, um, he's making plans, I think, to hike the Colorado trail. Like he is just in every direction all at once and like a hundred miles an hour in, in all the directions. Um, the guy's got more stoke than, than anybody I think I've ever met. Um, every time we go climbing, he's like the first on the wall, the last off the wall. If there's an open rope at any given time, he's like, I'll climb. And he's just like, he's just constantly going for it. Um, and it's a lot of fun to be around. Awesome. That's amazing. I love the, I love the enthusiasm. How can one that is not like myself like, or like you Sam, that hasn't experienced a disability, like how, how can, I mean, you, you obviously, this is your job, but I guess for someone who's, you know, doesn't get paid to do this, how can someone like myself, like support adaptive athletes and just where, where can I plug myself into this? Uh, into this into this world and i want to ask quinn when she's back this too but how can someone on the on the periphery plug themselves in and help out um i mean finding finding organizations that are local to you that uh that have volunteer opportunities that's i think the easiest and and you know best way to just get involved is to just show up um if you know if you have if you have the the checkbook to to throw money and donations around, like that's always you know organizations nonprofits always love having donations. Um, but as far as like the climbing goes, like if you just want to show up and and learn more, come out to we do our local meetup nights. Um, we host them every other Wednesday around the Front Range in Denver. Um, those are super easy, super low key ways to kind of come out, meet the community. 
see what we're about, um, get to, you know, get to hang out with, with the folks, um, and start building those relationships and building that rapport. Um, we offer volunteer trainings, uh, typically once a quarter kind of based on interest. Um, if you want to get a little deeper, like if you come out to one of those meetups and you're like, this was really fun. I want to do one of the national trips to like Yosemite or Ure for ice or whatever it is. Um, then I like people to take those, uh, those volunteer trainings. We kind of dive a little deeper into the typical disabilities that we're going to see when we're climbing, um, kind of the etiquette around those disabilities, some of the health and safety concerns around them, um, just to make sure people are coming at it as, as educated as they can be. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a doctor. I'm not, I'm not getting way into the weeds with it. I'm just saying like, if you've got a, if you've got a climber that you think might need some help, don't just assume it and go grab them, like ask them if they want help. Um, and if they do want help, ask them how you can help them. Don't assume that you know what they need. And, um, it's just, it's just really basic stuff like that, that I think a lot of people know in their, in their core, but you, you forget it or you lose track of it. Um, there's a, there's a really kind of a funny video that I show that was made um, by a group of uh, disabled climbers out of uh, Washington, D.C. And it's like a four minute little short film um, talking about basically disability etiquette. And there's one scene in there that it always kind of rings the it rings the bell. It's a gal with mobility issues and she's coming through a door and she's she's got her braces and she hangs one of her braces on her arm and she pushes the door open and somebody who means well comes over and they're like, Oh, I got it. And grabs the door and pulls it out from under her and she falls over. Um, and that's, that's like the, that's the scene that really like people go, Oh, <laughs> like it's, you think you're helping and, and sometimes you're not. <laughs> so um, getting that education, figuring out how to come at it from us, from a place where you aren't going to come in and, you know, unintentionally do harm, um, is a really important thing. Um, so, but I'd say, yeah, the, the easiest way to get started is just to find a volunteer opportunity that, that you're psyched on. If you like skiing, go find a, you know, Ignite or, or, um, NSCD or anything like that. If you like climbing, you know, come out to a paradox event. Um, if, if you like kayaking, I'm sure there's other organizations. I don't know the kayaking world, but just find that, find that lane and, and get into it. Quinn, I asked, uh, Sam, while you were gone, um, how can one that, that hasn't experienced disability support folks in this world, someone from on the periphery, how can they step in and plug themselves in to, to be supportive and help out? Yeah, I think there's a lot of lenses. It sounds like what Sam was talking to was the volunteer lens. So just like diving into it and getting in there. Um, and if you don't, if you don't want to take the time or don't have the time, then there's other organizations like the High Fives Foundation, the Kelly Brush Foundation, Challenged Athletes Foundation. Those are ones in particular that I know because they're spinal cord injury related. Um, but I'm sure there's, and there's like paralyzed veterans. Like there's lots of organizations out there that you can either donate money to or donate your time. Yeah. And I, I liked how Sam, he kind of brought it back full circle again to what we were talking about earlier and not plugging yourself in, in a, in a, in a, um, 
detrimental way it ends up being detrimental you're without assuming or, or, or trying to help out when it's when it's not needed just just kind of speak up and ask what what the needs are instead of assuming right yeah i think like something i always akin it to something i notice on trail and i don't want to throw all the hikers under the bus but whenever i'm on my hand cycle on hiking trails i get a lot more pushback because yes, I'm a wheeled device and I look different and I'm, um, it just takes one extra reaching thought to think, wow, this person's in a unique device instead of then just saying, well, you shouldn't be here. Like, why would they be in this unique device? Well, like it's not every day's arm day. I know I do live around Boulder and there's unique, uh, sporting activities that it is every day's arm day. Um, but the biking community, because it's a, a, a cool looking hand cycle, uh, more folks in the biking community are like, Oh, sick rig. Nice, nice job. Have a good day out. You know, like they're just more casual and it's more, it's, uh, I guess more autonomous than it. And I wish that more experiences for all people could be that way. Uh, just a lens of curiosity and don't, don't just make assumptions right away. Like how about you ask a question and then you can arrive at your a conclusion. <laughs> Do people, is there like an etiquette like on the trail? Do you often see people just that you step off immediately to to give you space? I mean, how does that interchange play? Or, or just sometimes like, hey, like, sir, ma'am, you have the right of way. I'll stop for you. Like, how did how how does that get navigated? Uh, I mean, just like same of like horse bike hiker etiquette. It's the same, but I do, I have been wanting to make some spoof videos and I did make a spoof video, but it was really hard to get, like, didn't come out very well, but like people, like people see me in my hand cycle and no joke, or just in my wheelchair, like as Sam was uh, talking about a narrative of like helping with the, with the door, like people see, regardless of how wide the trail is, it could be a five foot wide trail, but in my wheelchair, just in my little 22 inch wide wheelchair, people jump off the trail. Uh, and I'm just like, man, like, do you not have any depth perception of like, like we can still walk by each other? I don't know. Uh, so that's usually the jam. People is just like, stop, jump over. Yeah. Yeah. Dive into the bushes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know. So my, my, uh, my little video that I tried to make was like the opposite where we were in our, we were in our mobility devices and normal people were walking normal people. God, I'm such an asshole. Uh, able-bodied people were <laughs> hiking down the trail and like we dove off the trail in our mobility devices, but it didn't really turn out that well. <laughs> oh man. That was so <laughs> fun to watch. <laughs> oh, I like You're hilarious, Quinn. Uh, that's really funny. <laughs> um, well, I touched on the technology stuff a little bit earlier, but uh, my friend was curious if there is, I don't know, any adaptive technology coming out for climbing that um, could provide a, a good experience for people, perhaps specifically with a spinal cord injury. Um, I don't, I don't know that there's any like new technology. There's not like some device that goes and you like haul ass up the cliff or anything. Um, but we've, we've been working um, for, for a lot of years on, um, really refining mechanical advantage systems, um, coming up with different ways to connect people, um, into, into the systems that kind of put them in a, in a more ergonomic position, um, or, or offer them that mechanical advantage assistance if they, uh, if they don't have use of their legs, uh, and they, they're doing pull-ups. Like if they're feeling super strong, I'm like, Hey, do you want to climb the wall? Do you want to campus this thing? Um, if, if it's a newer climber, uh, I might put them on a, you know, a counterweighted belay or something that, that offers some assistance, 
Um, or we might put them, you know, we might ask them if they just want to, if they say like, no, I don't really want to climb the rock. I just want to get off the ground and kind of have that experience. Then we can hang like a full, essentially like a block and tackle system um, with a handlebar to sender and they can just crank pull-ups um, and get a ways up off the ground. So we have, we have a bunch of different options <clears throat> on how to, how to have folks climb, but there's not really like one technological advance that I see that I see coming. I mean, who knows somebody, nobody saw the iPhone coming, so it, uh, it could happen. Um, but I think, I think just refining the systems, making them less clunky, making them less contraption-y and, um, a little more user-friendly is, is going to go a long way. Uh, I noticed climbing touchstone wall in October. I did that for my five-year anniversary. Um, I felt like I was putting on like an exceptional amount of ATV motorcycle gear. Um, I use like the BD Bolson chair for sure, but just like for, for people with spinal cord injury, there's a lot more like cushioning and padding that needs to happen. Um, and so just those simple things, like if a harness could have a little bit more, like definitely wide four or five inch wide leg bands uh, and waistbands and have more cushioning, like just little nuances of technology in that way um, would make me not have to look like I'm going to battle with the mountain so much. One thing I would like to finish on, um, this is more of a comment than a question, but um, something you said, Quinn, in a short podcast I recently listened to, and that was, uh, use your community, you're not alone. And it kind of like, oh my gosh, you know, it kind of hit me, you know, it struck a chord for sure. And I see that as something that transcends more than just someone living with a life-altering injury, but it can also resonate with people, whether it be a mental health matter or any other socially related matter. And I think it's just a good principle to live by for anyone that might have some stuff going on in their life and dealing with. So I just want to say, I really appreciate what you said there. And there's just, you know, it was simple, just a simple statement and it just, it, it really resonated. So, you know, thanks for that. I appreciate that. Thank you, Peter. All right. Thanks everyone for tuning in. I, I really hope you all enjoy this show as much as I enjoy making it. It's a lot of fun putting this together each month for you all to tune in and listen to. So thanks so much for listening. Before you depart, I want to run a few things by you. I started the show to bolster the efforts that these advocates do year after year, and of course, to support the mission of Access Fund. So I'd like to ask you to either donate or better yet, become a member of Access Fund. Your support and membership goes a long way to help them with their mission of conserving, stewarding, and advocating for climbing. There are varying levels that you can that you can become a member at, but you can get started for as low as 20 bucks a year, and after that, you can reap all kinds of awesome benefits with first getting a free t-shirt and getting amazing discounts on some of the best climbing products out there. It's all listed on Access Fund's website, accessfund.org, so check it out. If you're a rock climber, please consider becoming a member of Access Fund. Second, if you want to do me a huge solid, please subscribe to the show and leave a glowing review and comment on Apple Podcasts. After that, jump on those social media channels and share it with your friends. It goes a long, long way. And I'd greatly appreciate if you help me out with that one. So thanks again for listening. I really appreciate it. And I'll catch you all next time.